Well, I want to begin this morning by making a, an obvious yet highly disputed statement. Here it is. Christ is the heart of Christianity. Now, you might think to yourself, well, of course Christ is the heart of Christianity. Yet scores of people attempt to live out the Christian religion with no thought, no regard, no knowledge of or love for Christ. He's the mascot at best for them. And as those who belong to Christ, that's us, regenerate believers who have Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, we understand that everything is built on Jesus Christ. Everything. Now we see bumper stickers that say it's all about Jesus, in which we would say a hearty amen. But we have to take this a little bit further and qualify what this means. Because I would argue that there are levels of understanding that we must grasp if we are to call ourselves Christians. Now, I don't want to be dogmatic about this, but I was thinking through this this, this week, and if I could boil it down, I would say that there are at least three levels of understanding Christ. The first is knowing Christ, the Christ of history. Knowing the Christ of history. Now, this is the most basic, and we could agree with archaeologists and historians and scholars who affirm that a Jewish man named Jesus of Nazareth lived in Israel 20 centuries ago and claimed to be the Messiah. Again, even non-Christians acknowledge this, and they can accept that. And so we would join them in acknowledging the Christ of history. That's the most basic level. To deny that Jesus even existed is a level far gone that's even beyond many secular scientists or, or historians, I should say. But that's one level. And there's a second level of understanding Christ, whereby we affirm Christ's identity. This has to do with theology, with our declaration of faith. This is the affirmation of Scripture and Christian doctrine and early church creeds and accepted tradition that acknowledges that Jesus is the eternal God, the second person of the Trinity, that Jesus is coexistent with the Father and with the Spirit. He is the prophesied Son of Man and the incarnate Son of God. He is perfect, spotless, sinless, born of the Virgin Mary, came to earth as a man, lived here with us, dwelled with us for 33 years, was crucified on the cross at Calvary to pay for sins. He died on Good Friday, was buried and resurrected to life again Easter Sunday on the third day. He appeared to the disciples and then he ascended to heaven. And now he intercedes for us, and one day he will return to judge the wicked and rescue the redeemed. So again, this is knowing Christ's identity. The identity of Christ is is who he is as Lord and Savior, as King of kings, as everlasting God. And again, believers affirm this, false converts recite this. But then there's another level, another level here of understanding Christ. And that is by way of intimacy. Again, you can know him personally, experientially, genuinely, lovingly. And it's one thing to affirm the truth of who he is, and we would affirm that and say yes and amen. It's right for us to have sound doctrine pertaining to the person and work of Jesus Christ. But furthermore, we want to press in and say that we have to understand his heart for us. Oftentimes we focus on the history 
and the identity of Christ, and we should. The Bible affirms both things. But today we're going to understand Him at a deeper level, I I pray. I want to explore Christ in a more intimate way, and today we're going to examine the heart of Christ. More specifically, the heart of Christ as our shepherd. So turn in your Bible with me to Matthew chapter 9. We're going to read verses 35 and 36. So Matthew 9.35 is where we're going to start. Now when we come to Matthew 9.35, we really come to this verse with a sense of deja vu. Why? Well, because we've essentially been here before. Because Matthew 9.35 is virtually identical to Matthew 4.23. And the reason for this is because they've both, both verses function as sort of a transitional summarization of the movement of Matthew's narrative as he goes along. They sort of punctuate certain periods of his narrative and sort of show us uh, seasons of time in the course of the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. In Matthew 4.23, again 4.23, Jesus has begun his earthly ministry in the region of Galilee, which is characterized by three things, and Matthew notes this. It's characterized by preaching, teaching, and healing. It says everywhere he went he was preaching, teaching, and healing. And then Matthew offers that summary statement just before launching into the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, 6, and 7. So Matthew 4.23 is kind of the setup. It, it, it ends the previous section, which recounts Jesus' ministry, and it launches into the Sermon on the Mount, and then after that it moves on to another period of his history. And so, but now we're at the place where we're on the other side of that. We've been through chapters 8 and 9, which is the, the healing ministry, the, wor- the wonderful works of Christ, We've seen that displayed in many different forms, and if you've been with us for the last several weeks or several months, we've worked through these two chapters and seen just the miraculous power and might and glory of Christ displayed in His works. But now, Matthew is again going to offer this transitional statement. At the end of this two-chapter portion, to launch us into chapter 10, which we're going to get to in a few weeks. But look at Matthew 9.35. He says, Jesus was going through all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. Now we're going to unpack this in just a second here, but I want to read this next verse which is going to add something to our understanding, something he doesn't include earlier in chapter 4. Um, back at verse 36 here, the very next verse, says, Seeing the people, he, referring to Jesus, felt compassion for them because they were distressed and dispirited like sheep without a shepherd. As we're going to see, this verse is going to open up something for us in understanding the heart of Christ. But I want to go back very quickly here to verse 35. As we've seen this before, I want to remind ourselves where, where we've been and what we're, what we're seeing here. Matthew records that Jesus is going throughout all the cities and villages. Now, we know that this is the general time frame coming out of chapter 4. He's still in the region of Galilee, even though he doesn't say that that's where we are. We believe that's where he is. He's in Galilee. According to the Jewish historian Josephus, the Galilean region, so the northern region of Israel was approximately 70 miles by 40 miles, or if roughly 2,800 square miles. It's about a third of the size of New Hampshire. So you can imagine a third of the size of our state, 
That's about the size of Galilee. It's a small region that was consisting of approximately 200 towns and villages with an estimated population of 15,000 people. So that's Jesus' first ministry area, the size of a third of New Hampshire, 15,000 people, 200 different towns. So to get to all of those 15,000 people, you've got to travel a lot. So that's what we see in the Gospels, Jesus just traveling and traveling and traveling. Now to hit every single town, it would have taken him several months to really do it justice, but we have no reason to believe that he didn't do that. So he was traveling for several months trying to hit every single place he could to reach all these people, the lost people in Galilee. And so verse 35 really functions as a summary statement of this, what we believe to be a second tour through the region of Galilee. And see, by chapter 10, the nature of this ministry is going to change because then Jesus is going to begin to send out his disciples into these regions to go and proclaim the good news of the kingdom. And by chapter 15, verse 20, his Galilean ministry is going to come to an end and he's going to move on to another region. But for now, he says, he is going through all the cities and villages in Galilee. What is he doing? He's traveling around, but what is he doing as he travels? Matthew says, first, he's teaching in their synagogues. He's teaching in their synagogues. The Greek word used for teaching is didasko. It's really uh, the distillation of uh, information. It's the giving of information. It's the, the proclamation of, of facts and knowledge and wisdom. But for Jesus, it's no less than his authoritative instruction on the Bible and the law of Moses and prophecy and theology, all of things pertaining to life and godliness. Similar to what we saw already in the Sermon on the Mount. He would have been teaching and elaborating like that. But Matthew even further qualifies this and says that he's teaching in their synagogues. A synagogue is a a local place of Jewish worship and learning. It would have also functioned as well as a a sort of town hall, uh, a court area where they would have seen lots of legal cases. And so the synagogue was the center, the center of all Jewish life and religion, everything. Back a a couple hundred years ago, whenever they would establish a new town in New England, they would start by building the meeting house. Now, the meeting house was the worship center, which is where this would have been in 1820, but it also was the center place of town meetings, and they would conduct all their business centered in this one location. That's similar to what these Jews were doing in their synagogues. All matters of Jewish life were conducted in this place. And with regards to teaching and learning, however... It was a custom, a Jewish custom, that any qualified Jewish male could come to synagogue and he'd be given the opportunity to teach on a passage of Scripture. He'd give a lesson. Now, this wasn't authoritative rabbinical teaching, but any man who was upstanding, who had some knowledge of Torah, would come in and he could give a lesson. This, this custom was extended even further to traveling dignitaries and also visiting rabbis. So if you're a rabbi and you're traveling around and you're kind of going on tour... It was customary, you'd go to a new town, they'd welcome you in and they'd say, Rabbi, would you like to teach this this coming Sabbath? And you would say, of course. And and he would say, well, all right, select from one of the, the passages of Scripture. And he would select a passage and they would bring out the scrolls for him and he would unroll the scroll and he would teach and then they would be edified. That was kind of the custom. Paul did the same thing until they eventually kicked him out. Same thing with Jesus, of course. But at this point, he is coming to all these different synagogues all over this region And he's teaching. And again, he is a respected rabbi at this point, so he would have been welcomed with open arms initially. 
He would have been able to select any passage and give people an interpretation, a lesson, a teaching that they, frankly, would have never even considered before. That's why Matthew also records that when people are hearing him teach, they were astonished, they were shocked, they'd never even heard anything like this before. Somebody teaching with authority, with wisdom, with understanding. As someone who, I don't know, wrote the book. That's Jesus. And so he did this in every single town he visited, and he's engaging in this teaching ministry. But he's also engaged in another ministry as well. Matthew says he is proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. This word for proclaiming in the Greek is keruso. It's oftentimes translated heralding or proclaiming or preaching. The idea that this is a loud, public declaration of a message. I once heard the question asked, what is the difference between preaching and teaching? And the answer was given, preaching is louder. That could be. I guess that's true. There's a little bit more than that, of course. D. Martin Lloyd-Jones has said that preaching is theology on fire. You take the truth of the Word of God, the theology of the Word of God, and you ignite it and you set it on fire for God's people. But in essence, my definition would be when you take a divine message of truth and you launch it into the ears of the hearer with passion, skill, and urgency. It's really as much of an art as it is a science, not to over-dramatize it. But Jesus really is the greatest preacher who's ever lived. Nobody preached better than Jesus, as I've said before, because Jesus not only invented preaching, he invented the vocal cords in the air that you would use to preach. So nobody understood preaching better than Jesus, and it is God's prescribed method for communicating divine truth. That's why we need preachers and preaching, especially in this region. But the Bible says here he proclaimed the gospel of the kingdom. What is the gospel of the kingdom? Frankly, scholars have been arguing about this phrase for years. For our purposes, I want to just very simply say that this is the gospel that pertains to the kingdom of God. In other words, it's the good news, which is the word gospel, the good news that has to do with God's kingdom. Why is this tricky? Well, because we don't know if this has to do with the present spiritual kingdom that every single Christian believer comes into spiritually when they become a Christian, or if this is in reference to a future kingdom that Christ is bringing in in the last days, to which all peoples and nations are subjected. So when we say the gospel of the kingdom, which message are we talking about? Which, which line of thinking are we thinking? It's safe for us, however, to begin with Christ's spiritual kingdom. In fact, he preaches this in Mark 1.15, He says, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, and then he delivers the message. He says, repent and believe the gospel, this good news message of Christ. So that is his message, that was Peter and Paul and all the disciples, that was their message, that's our message too. That the gospel of the kingdom is simply this, for every single person everywhere to turn from their sins, to repent of their sins, and put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ alone, and the Bible says you will have life, you will have salvation. When you die, you will go to be with Him, free from sin, free from condemnation, joy and eternal life forever with Christ. So again, very simply, that is the very essence of His gospel message. Regardless of when this future kingdom comes, the focus here is on the individual person to repent and to believe 
the message. And so everywhere he goes, Jesus is preaching this gospel, and he's calling people to repent and believe. At one point he tells the Pharisees, unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. So he reserved this message from nobody. Every single person heard this message from the mouth of Jesus Christ. And then finally, Matthew records that as he's traveling, he is teaching, he is proclaiming and preaching, but he's also healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. Now again, this is a summary statement, and if you go back to chapter 8 and chapter 9, that is really filled out quite a lot more. We see the examples of all the different kinds of diseases and kinds of ailments that Jesus is healing. And so if you were to wanted to unpack this phrase even more, go back and listen to the last you know, several messages, but read chapter 8 and chapter 9, that's what he's doing. And that's just a, a fraction of the kind of ministry he had healing people. But the point here, I think that it's clear to make there, is that there's no discrimination, there's no qualification. Jesus, as he sees people coming to him, he's healing them en masse. I mean, every single person. Some scholars have even said that they believe that there was a period of time in Israel that there wasn't a single sick or unwell person because of the healing ministry of Jesus Christ. Can you imagine no illness in your country for several years? That's the idea that every single time someone would come to Jesus, he would lovingly and immediately heal them. And the question is, why? Why did he heal people? Well, the simple answer as to why he performed signs and wonders and miracles was to authenticate his own ministry. It was a way for him to lend and give divine credibility to his gospel message because any rabbi could have come in and said, I have a new message for you. And people could have chosen to listen or not listen, to regard it or disregard it. But when Jesus comes with the power of heaven and says, turn from your sins and put your faith in me, or when he goes to the man, he says, your sins are forgiven. And the Pharisees, they lose their minds and they say, who can forgive sins but God alone? And then Jesus says, well, I'll tell you what, let me heal him so you can see the regenerative power of what I can do and that will verify the message that I can heal, not just physically, but spiritually. And so the miracles, they, they act as validation and verification of his ministry, which is why he extends that to his apostles as well, to validate this. But I think that one thing that is often overlooked when we talk about his preaching and teaching and miracles and healing is the component of his personal, relational reasons for why he healed sick people. Why else did Jesus heal the sick? And why did he do it in the way that he did? Why did Jesus walk up and touch people on their face? He could, we've seen already before, he could have actually just said, you know what, the person who's sick in the next town over, they're healed, and just pronounced a healing on them. But why did Jesus touch his tongue and touch their tongue and touch their eyes and pick up mud and hold them and kiss them? Why did he do this? Verse 36. Seeing the people, he felt compassion for them. Because they were distressed, and dispirited like sheep without a shepherd. As he ministered, Jesus observed the, in the Greek it's the word oklos. It means crowds or multitudes, a lot of people. Not just a small group that come around. I'm talking about hundreds and even thousands. Evidenced by the fact that he's feeding and ministering to 4,000 and 5,000. You do the math, 20,000, 30,000 people at one time. 
scores of people coming to Jesus to be healed of their ailments. And as he stood there, he would have looked out over this sea of people, all these people coming, and Jesus, or excuse me, Matthew notes that Jesus here felt compassion for them. This word compassion in the Greek is interesting. Sometimes this word has been re- rendered pity, that Jesus took pity on them or felt pity for them. But there's surely more than this. It comes from the word splankna, which is a strange sounding word. It's, it's weird to say that word. But it literally means the bowels or from the entrails or from the intestines. It's a word that references a person's guts, the inner part of their abdomen. More than this, however, it represents a common idiom of the day, where people in Jesus' day used to believe that the seat of a person's emotions, their, their soul, their heart, in terms of their feelings, rested in their bowels, in their intestines, in their guts. Really, you could render this phrase, from the heart. From the heart. And so to experience emotion that goes deep down inside of your guts and your intestines is to experience intense, serious emotion and connection. In the New Testament, this word is used 12 times. All of them are in the Gospels, and all of them refer to Jesus in some sense. Just to give you a couple examples, Matthew 14, 14, he's feeding the 5,000, and it says, when he went ashore, he saw a large crowd and he felt compassion for them and healed their sick. Never says he healed some of their sick. Doesn't say he felt compassion for only a couple of them. He felt compassion for them, the large crowd, and healed all their sick. Feeding the 4,000 in Matthew 15, Jesus told the disciples, I, I feel compassion for the people and do not want to send them away hungry, for they might faint on the way. Jesus is concerned not just about their spiritual condition. He is, but he's concerned for them because they're hungry. They need to be fed. And he says, I have compassion for them. I don't want them to go away and to faint because they're starving as they go away. Ergo, he feeds them, all of them. Matthew 20, 34, Jesus heals two blind men. Why? Says in the text, he was moved with compassion and then he touched their eyes. Mark 141, moved with compassion, Jesus stretched out his hand to cleanse the leper. Luke 7.13, the widow at Nain loses her son, her only son, and she's mourning in the streets. And Jesus sees the funeral procession going along and he stops them. And Luke notes that when, he, when the Lord saw her, he felt compassion for her. And he said, do not weep. Do not weep. He didn't just say, well, hope you feel better. No, he, helped, he had compassion for her and then he raised her son from the dead. Jesus is many things, but cold and calloused he is not. Over and over again we see him moved with compassion, moved with compassion toward people. And again, on the Greek word, the scholar R.T. Francis noted, this is strongly emotional. Strongly emotional. And one could even render the phrase, their heart went out to. If you go back to all those texts and say, Jesus saw the person and his heart went out to them. 
Jesus saw the person struggling with leprosy and his heart went out to him. Jesus saw the widow mourning the loss of her only son and he stopped the procession and his heart went out to her. Jesus saw all these people coming to him. But before they could even reach him, his tender, loving, divine heart was first going out to them. What is the reason for such an emotional response? Why is Jesus so moved this way? Again, we see crowds of people. I see crowds of people. Not this kind of crowd, but if I were to be lost in a large crowd and they're pressing in on you all the time, I'd feel a little bit claustrophobic, wouldn't you? Some people like this. Some people go to ball games and events and they love the feeling of other people next to them and squishing them in and the smell of their body odor and all this stuff. Drives me crazy. I don't like it. That was Jesus' daily activity, by the way. Pressed in on all sides by people grabbing at him all day long. But Jesus doesn't respond the way that we would tend to. He sees all these people coming to him and flocking to him, and he feels compassion for them. Why? Look at the text. Because they were distressed and dispirited like sheep without a shepherd. The people that were coming to Jesus, they weren't happy and confident. They weren't full of themselves and all put together. They didn't have everything going for them. You walk up to them and say, how are you doing? I'm doing pretty good today. That was not these people at all. Rather, they were skolo in the Greek, distressed. The word means vexed or troubled. And actually, when I was looking even further, the word has a a more severe meaning in some contexts, that of being harassed or even oppressed or wounded, or one context even was used to render the person destroyed. These were destroyed people, beaten down by sickness, by sin, by abuse. People around them, their friends, their enemies, their families, have, have attacked them and hurt them. They were wounded people, hurting people. And further, Matthew adds, they were dispirited. Ripto in the Greek means literally to be thrown down or cast down. They weren't just wounded and hurting. They were to the point where they were knocked down and lying on the ground helpless. Dragging themselves emotionally to Jesus. The idea that they they don't have this all together. They don't have all the answers. They're not okay. No, they're destroyed. They're wounded. They're hurting. They're struggling. And he sees all of these people crawling and limping and slinking their way to him on their face before him. And the text says he sees them struggling and he feels compassion for them. His heart goes out to them. And then Matthew uses an analogy here. What is this like, Matthew? What is this like? He says, they're like sheep without a shepherd. Without a shepherd. This phrase, my friends, is pregnant with meaning. There's so much behind this. In fact, it goes all the way back to the Old Testament in the time of Moses. Places I want to read to you this morning. 
toward the end of Moses' ministry. He's looking for a successor, somebody to take his place. And the Lord comes to him and tells him he's going to appoint Joshua. Joshua is going to come and relieve Moses in his ministry. But we read about this in Numbers 27, 17. We read, the Lord uh, says to him, May the Lord, the God of the spirits of all flesh, appoint a man over the congregation who will go out and come in before them, who will lead them out and bring them in, so that the congregation of the Lord will not be like sheep which have no shepherd. So God is calling Joshua to go and take Moses' place for the sole purpose of shepherding God's people. I don't want them to be a flock of people, a flock of sheep that have no shepherd. So his desire, God's desire, my friends, is for his people, as they're wandering around, and they're going to get hurt, and they're going to struggle, they're going to be wounded... He does not want them to wander around aimlessly and defenseless. Rather, he wants somebody always there to care for them. Moses was such a man. Joshua was such a man. However, Israel eventually rebelled against this plan, against the Lord. And in time, all the kings of Israel rebelled as well. By 1 Kings 22, Ahab, who's a wicked king, a wicked king, is prophesied against by a man named Micaiah, who warns, he says this to him, I saw all Israel scattered on the mountains like sheep which have no shepherd. Israel's going to wander, they're going to be exposed, they're going to be in danger, but God has charged the spiritual leaders of Israel to be their shepherds, which they neglected their call. God charged these men with spiritual leadership to protect God's people, to warn them of danger, to care for them, to mend their wounds, to be there for them, and they neglected their call. In fact, turn to Ezekiel 34. Ezekiel 34, this is powerful. Ezekiel is the Lord's prophet to the captives in Babylon. After years, centuries of rebellion, God finally delivers them over their captured by Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonian armies, and they're led away. Some of them remain to struggle in, in Jerusalem and around the Israeli, uh, Israel area. But most of them, many of them, the best of them, all go to Babylon. After the nation has fallen, he has a word here to the derelict shepherds of Israel after everything has gone terribly wrong. Ezekiel 34, Then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to those shepherds, Thus says the Lord God, Woe, shepherds of Israel who have been feeding themselves. Should not the shepherds feed the flock? You eat the fat and clothe yourselves with the wool. You slaughter the fat sheep without feeding the flock. Those who are sickly you have not strengthened. The diseased you have not healed, the broken you have not bound up, the scattered you have not brought back, nor have you sought for the lost, but with force and with severity you have dominated them. They were scattered for lack of a shepherd, and they became food to every beast of the field and were scattered. My flock wandered through all the mountains. That's Micaiah's prophecy, by the way. He says, and on every high hill my flock was scattered all over the surface of the earth, and there was no one to search for or seek for them. Therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. 
As I live, declares the Lord God, surely because my flock has become a prey, my flock has even become food for all the beasts of the field for lack of a shepherd. And my shepherds did not search for my flock, but rather the shepherds fed themselves and did not feed my flock. Therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am against the shepherds, and I will demand my sheep from them, and make them cease from feeding sheep. So the shepherds will not feed themselves anymore, but I will deliver my flock from their mouth so that they will not be food for them. This is sobering. Can you imagine being a shepherd, spiritually speaking, in Israel, neglected your call, abused the flock, and having the condemnation of the Lord come down on you? But there's something else that's happening here. This is a denunciation against all those who dropped the ball. The people of God, again, they're they're walking wounded here. To the point where they're not even damaged. They're destroyed. They're in Babylon. In a pagan place. In captivity. Suffering under these, these pagans. But I want you to notice something here, that God, in the midst of this condemnation, He offers a promise. Look over at verses 23 and 24. The Lord says this, verse 23. There's coming a day, He says, Then I will set over them one shepherd. Then He says, My servant David. Now David's been dead for 300 years. Who is this? We talked about this a couple weeks ago, didn't we? He says, My servant David, and he will feed them. He will feed them Himself and be their shepherd. And I, the Lord, will be their God and My servant David will be prince among them. I, the Lord, have spoken. I'm going to send a shepherd. One shepherd who's going to feed and tend and care for My people. My derelict shepherds, they have done terrible harm to My people. I'm going to send someone And he tells the people of God, He's going to come for you. He's going to be there for you. He's going to love you. Because they're all lost. They have no shepherd. But then the Lord God Himself says, I will be your shepherd. I will love you. I will care for you. He's going to come as a good shepherd. A good shepherd. Go back to Matthew 9.36. In the mind of Jesus, you have to see there is no time gap between these biblical promises. In other words, when He sees the people coming to Him, when He sees all these Israelite people who are coming to Him, they've already been abandoned by their old shepherds hundreds of years ago and even today. And later on in chapter 23, Jesus goes and He marches into the temple and He rebukes the present day shepherds for their dereliction of duty, the scribes and the Pharisees. He goes after them fiercely. You think Ezekiel 34 is bad? You wait till Jesus gets a hold of these people. But that's for a different day. He gives them an Ezekiel-like prophecy. And He tells them that, that, that their house is going to be left to them desolate. But here on this day, He sees all these people coming to Him. And they're distressed. And they're dispirited. And they're wounded. And they're hurting. And they're destroyed. And they're coming to Him. And He looks upon them with kindness. 
and compassion and love. My friends, let me argue for this. This is the heart of Jesus Christ. Yes, Jesus comes as a judge. Yes, Jesus deals fiercely with those who neglect His Gospel, turn against and disobey the Gospel. He acts fiercely against those who abuse the flock. But to those who are coming to Him, to those who belong to Him, He is tender. He's loving. Matthew 11, Come to Me, all you are weary and heavy laden. What does He say? I'm going to put you to work and make you earn it? No. He says, I will give you rest. I will give you rest. He says, take My yoke and learn of Me. I'm gentle and humble at heart. You will find rest for your souls because My burden is easy and My yoke is light. The heart of Jesus is loving and compassionate toward those who come to Him. And He's standing there. He's not standing there tapping His feet saying, come on people, let's get it together. He's not somehow annoyed with their condition. Gee whiz, you've been struggling for a long time. What's with you? He doesn't look at us like we're on some kind of probationary period. All right, three months of grace and then we're done. I think we sometimes come to Jesus with that that in our minds. All right, I believe in Jesus now. If I can just believe and be good and not sin too bad, then I'll be okay. And then when trouble comes, we say, I blew it. I trusted in Jesus for life. I, I, I confessed my sins. I believed on Him. I was doing alright. I went to church for a while. Then things really got bad and I turned and I fell off the wagon. He must be done with me. So I guess it's all over. And our fear is if we mess up during that probationary time, the deal is off. And salvation's gone. But Jesus says in John 6.33, all that the Father has given to me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Let that phrase echo in your mind. I will never cast out. He says later in verse 40, and I will raise them up on the last day. So as sure as your salvation is when you trust in Him, is as sure as He's going to hang on to you, and as sure as He's going to raise you up in glory on the last day. He's not going to let you go. He's not going to turn His back on you. We would do that to each other, wouldn't we? At a certain point, listen, my patience is gone, my grace is gone, I've had enough, I'm, I'm done here. But we're sinful, aren't we? That is not the heart of Christ. Those who come to Him, whom the Father gives to Him, He says... They will come to me and I will never cast them out. These sheep that are coming and they're dispirited and they're hurting and they're wounded. He says elsewhere, a bruised reed he will not break. A smoking wick he will not extinguish. When sinners repent of their lawlessness and their wickedness and they come to Jesus by faith, by faith, we trust in Him, that He's the one who redeems us, that He's the one who's able to save us, not my merits, not my strength, not my power, not my adequacy. He's the one who saves by His grace through faith and trusting in Him. He looks on us with compassion and loving kindness and tenderness. He sees His lost sheep. And when He looks on them with compassion, and puts His heart and His love on them, guess what? 
We have found our shepherd. And if that's you, if you recognize that you've sinned against God, say you've never trusted in Jesus before, maybe you walked in here and we're at the wrong church. Maybe you don't know why you're here. Maybe you came and you said, my life's a mess. I don't, this is my last stop. I don't know what else to do. And you recognize that you're struggling. Not just physically, emotionally, but spiritually. That you and God aren't good. That you've turned against Him. You've rebelled and tried to do this your own way. And you sinned against God. And you need forgiveness. Let me encourage you. If you're coming to Christ today, if you're here because you want forgiveness from Jesus Christ, by faith, trusting in Him, He will give it. He will forgive you. You have to trust Him, but He will forgive. And His heart toward you turns from that of condemnation and judgment to that of a loving shepherd who will never cast you out. But you have to turn. You have to forsake your life and say, "My life, that life is over. I'm looking to You, God. I trust You for salvation. You're it for me. If that's where you are, take heart. Turn to Christ. Confess your sins. And trust in His finished work on the cross. That His work on the cross is enough. And you might, you might say, well, that sounds great. Thank you, Pastor. But you don't know what I've done. You don't know my sins. You don't know how bad it's been. You wouldn't, if you knew who I was, you wouldn't be so eager to offer eternal life to me. But that's not how God sees it. Yes, your sins are terrible, and so are mine. Yes, wickedness is vile. Yes, your iniquity is great. But God's love is greater. His grace is greater than our sins if we trust in Him. See, the people coming to Jesus, they were destroyed. They were wretched sinners. They were adulterers. They were debauched. They were cast down. They were vile. They were thieves. They were liars. Some of them murderers. They were dead in transgression. But yet, Christ looked upon them with compassion. You might be thinking to yourself, what does that look like? Go to Luke chapter 15. We're going to close here on Luke 15. Matthew, Mark, Luke. This is often known as the parable of the prodigal son. And what this is really in context, Jesus is teaching before the crowds. He's got a large audience with him. Part of that audience consists of these Pharisees and scribes, the shepherds who he's going to condemn shortly. But they're all sitting there hanging on his every word, trying to make him find something wrong, trip him up. And he's teaching on this, and he has lots of things going on. He's going to condemn them even in this parable. But he's speaking to those, and many people who are around him are those who are sinners and tax collectors and the sexually immoral. And everybody in Israel who is regarded as a sinner is sitting there with him, listening to him talk. And he's addressing them in this parable, and he speaks of this here. Excuse me, Luke chapter 15 Starting in verse 11, here's the parable. And he said, a man had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the estate that falls to me. So he divided his wealth between them. 
And not many days later, the younger son gathered everything together and went on a journey into a distant country, and there he squandered his estate with loose living. Now when he had spent everything, a severe famine occurred in that country, and he began to be impoverished. And so he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, and he sent him into his fields to feed swine. And he would have gladly filled his stomach with the pods that the swine were eating, but no one was giving anything to him. Verse 17. But when he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired men have more than enough bread, and I'm dying here with hunger? I will get up and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me as one of your hired men. You don't have to take me back as a son if you don't want to. I don't deserve it, but just make me a slave and feed me something. That's what he's saying. So he got up in verse 20, and while he was still a long way off, His father saw him and felt compassion for him and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and in your sight I'm no longer worthy to be called a son. But the father said to his slaves, quickly bring out the best robe and put it on him and put the ring on his hand and sandals on his feet and bring the fattened cow and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and has come to life again. And he was lost and has been found. And they began to celebrate. My friends, this is a picture of salvation. This is a picture of what we see. Isaiah 53.6 says that all of us, like sheep, have gone astray. We've all turned aside to our own way. We get our little slice of inheritance, our little slice of life and heaven on earth and whatever we think we want here. We take that life that we've been given and we run off and we, we spend it on loose living. We live for ourselves. We build up sandcastles on earth. But let me tell you, those sandcastles are going to get destroyed when the waves come in, aren't they? We wander away from God. We're like the prodigal son. But by God's grace, He extends His hand to sinners. He draws them in. He gives them a new heart. He heals them. And like this man who breaks custom and culture, gathers up his tunic and he begins to run to his son. And he grabs this smelly, disgusting, vile son of his, emaciated, he grabs him and he kisses him. And his heart goes out to him. How is it that he can forgive? How is it that he can do this? Is it, does he simply overlook the sins? Eh, it's not a big deal. No. No. The way and the reason that God is able to even do this is because a payment has been made. Sins have been covered by ransom. 
And you might ask, well, how? How does that happen? Well, the wages of sin is death. And sins must be paid for in blood. And so God the Father sends God the Son to earth, wrapped in a human body, full of life, bones, organs, and blood. And the Son gives His life on the cross and dies as a sacrifice to pay for sins. Some of my sins? No, all of my sins. And when He dies, the last thing He says is tetelestai in the Greek. It is finished. Paid in full. And this payment is made on behalf of those who are coming to Him. And when you come to Him by faith, and you trust in the promise, and you trust in the work that He's done, when you see that cross, and you identify, that's my cross, I belong there, but yet Jesus dies on my cross in my place, then your sins have been paid for by Jesus, the spotless Lamb, the only one able to pay for your sins. And when He dies, the penalty of your sins dies with Him. When He rises, your life begins in Him at the resurrection. And all who would come to Him by repentance and faith, He will never, ever cast out. My friends, this is the heart of our Shepherd. He is a good Shepherd. Read John 10. Memorize John 10. That's your homework this week. No, read John 10. Meditate. Pray through John 10. Sing John 10. He is our Good Shepherd. He is not a hired hand who cares nothing for the sheep, who abuses his flock. No. He's the Shepherd who cares for his sheep. And you know what else? He appoints other shepherds, under shepherds, to feed the flock and to care for the flock. And woe to any shepherd who will not feed the flock of Christ and be faithful. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we know from the Bible that there burns in You a fierce wrath and hatred over sin. We know that because of Your holiness and Your righteousness and Your purity and Your transcendence, You will have no part, even one fleck, to do with sin. That You will thoroughly mete out in judgment all sin and iniquity on this planet. And when we stand and face the fury of that judgment on that day, were we to see that, we would tremble in fear and fall down as dead. But in that, we also know that your heart and your character and your nature is also gentle and loving and merciful and gracious and long-suffering. That your heart toward those who you desire to save is that of a father, a heavenly father, one who is adopting children. That in your love and compassion, you send your only son, the one who is just like you, spotless and perfect and holy and righteous, that you give him up as a sacrifice 
to cover our sins. And you satisfy your own wrath and your own judgment on the Son who doesn't deserve it. But you do this so that you might bring many sons to glory, as the text says. God, your love for us is beyond comprehension. Lord Jesus, your heart toward those who are hurting, I can't fathom. That in the very core depths of your soul, there is a longing and an aching to bless those who are lowly, to love us in our pain. And Spirit of God, You carry out the work of the Father and of the Son. And You bind us and You bring forth regeneration through the giving of a new heart. You make us alive in Christ. And You strive with us. And even in every way that I don't know how to pray, I don't know how to live, You bear with us and You strive with us. And You utter the prayers of our heart that are too deep for words. And You sharpen our minds. And You convict our conscience. And You give us strength when we are weary. And You bring about the joy of the Lord in us. You're the one who strives that You will bring us to completion on that day. Oh God, I pray. I plead with You, Lord, that You would touch every heart here everyone who belongs to You, that they might see that they're not on thin ice with You, that if they belong to You, that Your heart is toward them, that Your loving kindness extends to them, that they would see that Your grace is sufficient and that Your power is perfected in our weakness so that we don't boast in ourselves, but that we boast only in Christ who is sufficient for us. God, I pray that You would help us evermore to know You and to know Christ, who is our life. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.